Uh, we'll be in Genesis 2 today, uh, Genesis 2, verses 4 through uh, 17. And, um, and I know we're a few weeks into this, but we, uh, we still have some of those, uh, uh, some ESV scripture journals uh, there that you, uh, you know, uh, can, can mark it up and, and write some notes uh, in there as well. I think they're out there in the foyer. I would ask if you, you know, throw five bucks to offset the cost. That'd be great, but if you're not able to, feel free to take to take one for yourself, they're, they're, it's so helpful sometimes just to have that all, all marked up and have those notes, you know, with you as you, uh, as you study. It's been uh, pretty beneficial for me in going through it that way, and uh, I want to make sure that you know that that is available for you. Um, those are the ESV Scripture Journals right out there in the, uh, in the foyer. Yeah, uh, so we will be uh, discussing, you know, kind of uh, creation, looking at uh, work and, uh, and seeing what God's intended purpose is for it. Um, and uh, we're starting kind of a new subplot, you know, within in the book of Genesis, and so I'm, I'm really excited to jump into that here today. Um, just as we begin, it'll be a, it'll be a short reading here, uh, but uh, I, if you are physically able, I'd ask that you stand as we read these, these words for us today, as, uh, as God has spoken to us and revealed Himself to us here in uh, Genesis 2, uh, verse, uh, I'll start here in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put a man. Uh, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight, uh, uh, to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, which is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold that is uh, gold of that land is good. Delam, onyx, a stone uh, are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flowed east uh, of, Syria, of Assyria. And the fourth is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, so there's a lot going on in this text. I want to focus uh, a lot here on the purpose for man. Uh, one of the things that I've said from the, from the get-go as we're, as we're reading through um, the book of Genesis is that Genesis uh, was not written to answer the question, uh, uh, what is man? What is he made of? Uh, it's not written to, to, to answer the question of how was creation made or, or uh, what is all of this stuff that's going on here in the book of Genesis. It's not even trying to answer some of that stuff. The big question that Genesis is trying to answer for us is not how or what about man, but why. Why man? Why humanity? What is the meaning of this life? 
And within its context, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern context, Mesopotamia in Babylon, this is where people uh, received this. In that context, it is speaking uh, against the culture around it. Uh, it, is, it is a beautiful uh, a beautiful rendition and account of truth and, and the beginning, but it is very intentionally trying to restructure how the people at that time think about themselves and about their world and especially about their God. That's the big thing. Is God, it's rooted in God, and that changes everything. That same idea tran- uh, transfers over to us today. Uh, a lot of the same things, the ideas, the principles that they are, they are battling and, 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 and drinking, I guess, uh, uh, in that culture are similar to what we do now today. And so we can read Genesis and be helped today understanding that it is trying to restructure the why of our world. Why do we do this? Why are we made this way? And today it's going to ask this question, why do we work? Why do we have this job? Why do we do these things? Because sometimes it feels like God designed in the garden, He designed us just to be in paradise with Him, which is true. And so I have to ask myself sometimes, so then why is my job so awful? Why is my job so, so tough? Why are my coworkers so slimy or so not getting things done as they need to? Why, why, why? And God sets us here in the garden and explains to us the meaning of our work. And I'm hoping that today, my prayer is that we go from here to understand more, but in that understanding of, of, of kind of how God designed it, that we will go from here with a renewed energy and vigor to, to, to work in this world with everything we've got for His glory. And hopefully, that's a bit of a change from when we came in. That we, that we more clearly and more passionately will labor for the cause of Christ in whatever area we are working in this world. So we are going to uh, look at this. I guess that the main urge comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Uh, I, I always love it when Scripture is the, the command here. It is whatever, whatever you do, whether you eat or you sleep or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So that is going to be the urge today. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Of God. And in focus today, especially, is the idea of work. So I'm going to frame this up a little bit, um, and, and it just as we normally do, just kind of go through the text as it's, as it's presented there. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here in verse 4 just to set us up, because it's going to set us up well for the rest of our time in Genesis. So we're going to go through uh, chapter 12 here in this series. We'll pause, and then next summer we're going to come back. Uh, so I'm going to give a little bit more work here that, that sets us up really well here. So uh, if you look at your Bible, you'll be a little bit lost if you're not looking at one. Um, it starts with this idea. Um, these are the generations. I guess, sorry, point one is the Lord is the point. There you go. The Lord is the point. So this, this is our first point. Uh, verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This phrase here at the beginning, this is kind of the structure work. This phrase here, these are the generations. This is a really, really big deal in the book of Genesis. Um, this word in Hebrew is toledot. That's fun. Uh, toledot. If you have a dog, you can name it toledot. That'd be really fun. Um, toledot. Uh, in, in, in Greek, this word is genesis. That sounds really similar to then in English, genesis. This is where the name of the book Genesis comes from. In the, uh, these are the generations. These are the generations, Toledot, Genesius. These, this is what became of. That's what it literally means. This is what became of whatever is listed afterwards. We're going to see this if you just want to flip over it. Chapter 5, verse 1. These are the generations of Adam. 
So this is what became of Adam. So this is how this, this Toledot uh, works. Um, it, it builds up this idea of, of here's the character, and here's something that happens in their life, and now here's their legacy. This is what happens of them, Toledo. This is, this is what became of them. So Genesis 5, you get, we've built up in Genesis 1 through 4, we've built up here is Adam, here's who he is, and then we turn the page and we're going to hear what happens to the following generations. This is what became of Adam. This is what happened here. So here, it's really interesting. We're going to see this 10 times in the book of Genesis. I don't want to get into numbers too much, but 10 is the number of completion to ancient Near East. So there's a completedness to the creation account in that there is a tenfold pattern in Genesis of the Toledot. That was really nerdy, but it's not just to inform those who want to be nerdy. Uh, there's, there's, there's a point to this. This Toledot pattern, it invites us into the story time and time again, 10 times over, we're going to get this pattern over and over. And what is this pattern emphasizing? There are some key things here. It emphasizes this idea that things are created good, that God creates us to be with him. It, 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 it calls into this question of what happens when there's sin. We haven't got there quite yet in Genesis, but we will. And we see how sin turns that on its head, Turn, uh, makes it less than what it should be. And we get invited into this rhythm over and over and over again to see what will be known as the spread of sin. And I don't know if, if you're like me, but I don't feel like I've ever had that like one cycle, like where I went down a valley and then came back up and I was like, all right, we're good again with God. Okay, now I have my good testimony as a Christian, and that's the one time it went bad. If you're like me, you've got a little bit more of that cycle that happens again and again and again. Genesis is written for those of us who have that, that cycle of, of, of here's how God had it, and we're doing well, and then we turn to ourselves, and it goes bad, and then we find that this God who is holy and just is also merciful, and we can go on again, and then we turn back to ourselves, and we're going to see this over and over again with Adam. We're going to see this with Shem. We're going to see this with Noah. We're going to see this with Terah. We're going to see this over and over again, and this is the structure here. I'm making a big deal about it right now, we're going to come back to this kind of in reference in the days to come, but this is a big deal. These are the generations. So what's at the point here? Nine times, it's the generations of a person. This time, it's a generation of what? Of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth were created. There is a thing going on that God is intentionally doing, and now it just sets sail. And here's what happens to all of creation. And the story begins. It's the opening credits here. We've got, you know, the, 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 the fight or whatever, the creation, this is all great. And then the title comes and we switch to chapter two and everything's been created and the movie plays out. This is what happens into the heavens and the earth. Okay, now I'm going to address this next part here and then it'll take us really into our work. Um, the heavens of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth. Chapter two, God creates the heavens and the earth. They're not two different accounts. They're meant to be seen together. And I guess there's a picture we could put up. It's like when you look at a map, Genesis one is the big map. Here's everything that happened. Genesis two is that zoomed in map. And so you don't have to actually know anything that's on that screen. It's just how the, how, how the map works. Genesis two is that, that, that circle, that zooming in, giving us more detail. It's the same account. It's like if you read Genesis 1 as your left eye looking out, and Genesis 2 as your right eye looking out, and when we bring them together, we get something more of a 3D creation story. 
So that's what's happening here in this. So what happens in the poetry? You're going to have to look at the words very specifically here. We're, we're zooming in to see a little bit more of what God is meaning of this. All right, uh, you can put the next slide up on the screen. The heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is where we get the big point here. Uh, it's, it's a thing uh, in poetry. It's really helpful in, uh, in, 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 uh, in biblical, uh, in, in, in reading your Bible and studying your Bible. It's a thing called either a chiasm or a chiasm, depending on how stuffy you want to be with how you say it. Um, so it's this idea, the idea is an X, okay? Um, and so it's a poetic palindrome. You're going to start with something, and then you'll end with something, and everything is going to match all the way till the middle. Okay, so I think on the screen you have it there. Uh, he created, uh, what is it? Uh, the heavens starts us, and you can find it right here in the poetry, and then we end with heavens. And then the next thing stated is the earth, and then we find out that the second to last thing is the earth. And then there's created, and then the third to last thing is made. So this is bringing us in here. It's kind of interesting that it starts with the heavens and the earth were created and then intentionally flips it so that the earth and the heavens were created. Every word and the ordering of the words of Scripture was divinely inspired to communicate something. It's not just that we accidentally flipped heavens and earth here. This is a signal for us to look into the Word of God a little deeper. The point of the, chi the chiasm, the chiasm uh, is that middle part because then it all hinges on something. There's a perfect balance, and what's at the middle? You guys can do it. What is in the middle there? There's a lot being created. There is the act of creation and making. Who is doing that? Right in the middle, you find the big point. Lord God. The Lord God did that. Isn't that amazing? That is the point. The point is God. There is our first point. The point is God. But here's one more thing that we're going to find, and then and this is really a big setup because work makes a whole lot more sense when we get here, is that, is that in chapter 1, we hear the name of God. And what is the name of God? We've talked about it. Elohim. Elohim, the plural God, three-in-one Godness right there in his name. Chapter 1, Elohim. This plurality of God, three persons, one God, wants you to be with you and designs you in his image. And now we get something else here. This is the first time we get it. And we get it seven times in this text. Lord God. Elohim is this big creator God. Lord is the relational covenantal name of God. When we hear Lord, all capital, L-O-R-D, it is the God of relationship. The Lord God created. He made a relationship and he wants you to, to work out your faith. He wants you to work and cultivate creation because of your relationship with him. This is how it all starts. And we're going to work this out now as we, as we read this, that the entire point is God is the point, and he is in relationship with you. And so your work reflects that. That's the answer there. So now, that's a huge setup. We'll go way faster um, through the rest of this. Verse 5, then, it gets us into this idea that, uh, that creation is ready for cultivation. That'll be our second point. Creation is ready for cultivation. Verse 5, when no bush of the field uh, was yet in the land and no small plant of the field yet had sprung up, for God uh, had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the whole land that was watering the whole face of the earth. There are a couple of things that were happening here. Why was there no bush of the field? Why, why had nothing sprung up yet? Well, the first thing, on the one hand, 
the Lord God, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, Elohim, he hadn't started the rain cycle. I mean, it just says it there. He hasn't started the rain cycle yet. But on the other hand, there's something else. We could have just said that because he seems super powerful and just speaking things into existence. He does something else. In chapter one, he's doing that. He didn't start the rain cycle, but what's the thing that comes after that? Every word is important here. He says, and also he hadn't, there was no man to work the ground. This is the design of work. We haven't got to the fall yet. Your work is not cursed. Your work is not, is not, is not the curse. Work was here. God hadn't started the rain cycle, and he hadn't put a gardener in to work alongside him. The intended purpose of our work is to help the flourishing of the world. And we see that when God does his thing and man does his thing, then the earth then produces and flourishes. That's a big deal. Because there are so many songs. What was I? I was <laughs> listening to uh, Loverboy today because uh, they, everybody's working for the weekend, right? Uh, so I just had to listen to it on the way here because I'm really immature. And that was a big deal. I mean, that's something that we think about a lot. Well, what if the work was in tandem with God's rhythms and God's, God's activity? What do we do with that? Now, maybe you're like, that, that sounds great, Josh, but my work is definitely not designed for the rhythms of God. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's intended to be. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. But even so, God created a world that was very good, but incomplete. It doesn't take away from God. He had a purpose for us to do something with it. And that's fantastic. Like my work is not just insignificant, like just passing of time and making some money. He created the world to need us to do something with it. That's incredible. That's a big, big deal. It needs, the garden needs a gardener. And so, verse 7, he puts the gardener in it. But first, he's going to have to create the garden. So we go back to what we know from Genesis 1, and now we have it right here in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That is just a massively heavy uh, verse there. Uh, just study that, all those words that the Lord God formed man of dust, breathed into his nostrils, breath of life, and he became a living creature. So what happens is, I mean, you can get it here, but God grabs some dust. Poetically, this is going to come up again. You came from dust here, and then curse to dust you will return. So this dust is a big deal. He, he grabs up. He could have spoken man into existence, right? He did everything else. Let there be light, and there was light, but man, he decided to do this, and he's decided to create it. He's decided to, to, to form a vessel here. Jehovah Elohim poetically scoops up dust, forms man in the image of the original. Uh, Jeremiah 18, if you ever want to run that one down, is, is, is this idea about God creating vessels in this way. See, in art, there is an original, and then you have the, 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 the whatever the art, the piece of art is. So uh, you, you may think of, you know, if you're, if you're sculpting or if you're, you're painting, that there is kind of the model that's sitting there, and then everyone's kind of looking, you know, and painting and sculpting or whatever. There's an original, and then there is the image of the original. What we get here is, is, is the potter, God creator, the original, is looking at himself and then creating something, an image of himself, and putting it in there and saying, there you go. Rule this. Have dominion over this. Cultivate this. 
And that's what he does with us. But he doesn't just leave it there. We're not just this vessel that's been created. He breathes. That's a big deal. He breathes into us. This breath shows a, a powerful intention that God, uh, that, that God was thoughtful and that his activity had effect. Uh, what it speaks to us today against our culture is that man didn't just happen. There's a very intentional process of creating man here specifically for this purpose. We didn't just arrive here. We just didn't become this. We're not just one phase within this long trajectory of us turning into something else. He created us here for this, and so we don't need to wait till the next thing. We don't need to think we're not there yet. We're there. You can do God's work now because He's created you how He wants you to do His work. But it's not just this powerful intention. It's also loving intimacy. Because remember, the tone of all of this is God is a relational God. His name is relational. He wants us to be in relationship with Him. God could have just spoke man into being, but He chose to breathe life into him so that the, Im uh, so that the image would not simply be set there like an idol representing God, but that the image itself would be able to choose how to reflect God. That is a very specific thing that we're doing. He has placed you in your family, whether you work in the home, whether you work from the home, whether you work uh, in an office, whether you work uh, in other states or other countries, wherever you work, He has placed you there with an intent to reflect Him. You can choose that because He has breathed life into you. You can choose how to glorify Him with where He has placed you. And then He sets man in the garden, which, as we see, is just overflowing with abundance. It is ready. He's resourced you well to do this. Verse 8 and 9, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and, he put, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He sets him there, and, he, uh, and, he, and I'm going to jump ahead here now um, to verse 15 to kind of link this thought. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to work it and to keep it. That is what we do. This suggests the idea of cultivation. Uh, uh, there is a, there's an author here that, that, um, that writes about, uh, makes a really great distinction that the word work is, is very similar to the word serve. It's kind of the same thing. Work and serve is going to be the same thing. It's, it's kind of like um, the temple priests were put in the temple to work and to serve. So that's kind of a, a nice way to think of that. It's kind of interesting that they're in a garden temple as well. Uh, and to keep it is the idea of to protect it. You know, I'm going I'm to keep it, uh, uh, you know, fumble, recovery, we all hold it, you want to keep it, you protect it. It's that kind of a thing. To keep it and, pr and protect it, to serve. It's this idea then of stewardship. Um, so in our ruling, we are to be, to be seen as stewards. That's what we're doing with, with, with the earth. So uh, there's a quote from uh, Timothy Keller that we've got here for the, on the screen. Ruling the world as God's image bearers should be seen as stewardship or trusteeship. God owns the world, and he's put us under our care. Uh, he has put it under our care to cultivate it. So I, I think I'm going I'm to keep moving ahead here. Um, because we really, this idea of cultivating, it's, it's a nice word, but I feel like I've, I've heard so many Christians try and bring this word back, and it's still way up in the cloud. What does this mean in my own life? Like, I have a job that's not a creative job. 
I have a job that's, that's supposed to be, uh, maybe you have a job that is, that is supposed to be one where you just do what you're told. Uh, you just, you know, fill the order. You just punch in the data. You, you just do the visits. You just do whatever you need to do. You teach the curriculum. However it is, there's, there's not a lot of creativity. I feel like sometimes when we say cultivate, it, it makes it seem like all Christians should just stop their, their day job and just dream of ways to be creative. And that's not exactly what it's saying here. There is something about that, but it's saying you can use more than just uh, art to, to, to project the name of God, to proclaim the glory of God. Uh, Timothy Keller, he, he, he goes on to uh, explain it this way. He says, this idea of cultivating is maybe to, to see the world uh, as a garden, that we are gardeners in that garden, and that, that the world around us is a soil, and that we, we put those good soils, the good truths of the gospel into the soil there. He says, we're not, we're not to see ourselves as park rangers who just step back and we're looking at preservation. We, we, we just don't touch the world. Uh, he says, we're not supposed to look as ourselves um, as developers who just pave over it in our own ways. He says, but we need to be gardeners. We need to sit here and take, take stock of what we have whether that's the, the relationships, the family we have, the coworkers we have. Now, just pay them over and say, go away, but to figure out how do we cultivate that into something good. We've been given something. Our situation is that garden. How do we cultivate that to be good? Uh, to the education we've had, to the resources, financially, to our home. How do we use those things as though they are the garden we've been set in to cultivate something that helps people with the gospel? Now, I know that we have a lot of um, like scientists, engineers, uh, professors, education uh, are kind of, kind of a lot of where we're, where we're at here. I know that's not hitting everybody uh, here, but whatever your field is, I think this speaks a lot to it, is that you've not simply been placed into the context of, you know, kind of home or work or, or these different people areas. You've also been placed in a profession. Adam was placed here as the chief gardener. <laughs> he's, he's the one cultivating. But you've been placed into an area, uh, and, and, and it's not cursed. <laughs> it's, uh, there, are some, there are some jobs that are inherently just against God, but my guess is th th that you're not in those areas, you know, right now. Um, you can use education to cultivate lives for the gospel. This one seems pretty easy. You can, you can train up kids. There's, there's a teaching side to that there. But I don't want to just limit it at that. Like, oh, my work in doing this garden work, this work of God, is to teach others. You can also cultivate the field itself. The question would be, how can you make education better by being in education? Not just how can you make other people better through education. How can you make education better? How can you make the medical field better for the cause of Christ by being in it. Maybe this means you look at the, the procedures you do, how you handle, your bedside manner, uh, how you, uh, the, the costs. I don't even know how all of that stuff works. What if you are in uh, sales? What if you are in engineering? What if you are in something other than that? You, you can use your job as a vehicle to proclaim the gospel in a very contextualized way, but you also can make your profession better. You can also redeem how you talk about it to other people. Now, I know that that's kind of still a high view, but this is all that's in here. 
The cultivating that's supposed to happen is this ongoing work with God. God is going to give Adam the reins. God is going to give Adam the cycles. But he's also going to expect Adam to keep being a better. As more plants grow, Adam has to continue to become better, right? As the animals get bigger and have more babies, he's going to have to learn husbandry, right? He's going to have to learn this. He's going to have to be a better gardener in the act of gardening. So I don't feel like that's too far from the text here. God is giving us a whole lot of work that's very meaningful. But I think the big thing to take away from this is the order in which he gives it. Because we have to remember that he makes man, then he commissions man, and then he gives rest. So he makes man, he makes man in his image. Your identity precedes your work. Like that might be something that someone needs to hear here. You are not your job. You are not your work. You are not your paycheck. You are not your last review. You are not how your neighbors, how the Joneses think of your job. That's not you. You are first created in God's image. You have dignity. You are called to God. You are forgiven by Christ through faith. That's you. And then here's an area at which you can go take God out to the world. You can go show people how that changes the way you do. Your work does not define you. Christ defines your work and how you go about it. So there's identity, and then there's that vocation, that calling, and then he sets up the right pattern before he gives us all these details about work. God rests at the end of chapter one. Before he really goes into detail about our work, he rests. That cycle of rest is there for you to remember that your identity precedes your work. You are not your work. You've got to stop and understand what God is doing. And so I think that that is so beautiful. But as this goes on, then we get to this section here, I just for the, for the, for the, for the sake of getting through all of the things here, there's uh, uh, all of the verses here is verse 10 through 14. I'm going to summarize this. Uh, and maybe summarize with, I think we've got a picture here. There are four rivers that flow out of this. This is a very odd section here. There are four, four rivers that flow out of this. I think there's a picture up there of kind of the area that we're, we're talking about. We have these two, the, the Pishon and the, and, the, and the Gihon or something like that. Um, so uh, that's one thing. But then we get Tigris and Euphrates, and we're like, aha, now we know where it is. There's Babylon, uh, Babylon there's, there's the Fertile Crescent. This is kind of where everything's at. We don't know where these first two rivers are. We've not archaeologically found these two rivers. I think skeptics at this point, say, ha-ha, you haven't found it, so it didn't exist. Um, you're wrong. It wasn't there. Uh, and you can go that way. I know I've done that quite a bit uh, as well. But uh, the text is not trying to do that. The text is doing something different. On one level, as we're Bible readers, when we get things like geography in the Old Testament, it's kind of locating things for us. So that is, you know, part of it. But there's also a theological thing that's being said. What is the meaning? Why are we saying this? The reason why there are these rivers, because we get this one river, goes through and feeds the garden, and then it turns into four rivers. The point that's being made here theologically is that this was intended to be the center. This is where it started. God is not creating a whole bunch of experimental gardens, and this one triumphed. This is the beginning. This is the intent, and from here, the whole world will be fed with the waters of this. It will be nourished. It will flourish when we do this. Because it's a very odd section to add. When man is working in line with what God is doing, then the earth will go out and be blessed. Now, if you 
are, are, are a word nerd. You can chase down gold. You can chase down onyx. You can find that there is another garden. There is another city that has these, and it's in the book of Revelation. It's already foreshadowing that this will be complete. This is the plan, and it will go uninterrupted, and people may decide to work for themselves every so often for like all of history. But God's plan is that the world will be blessed by this, that when God and man are working together as they do, that the world will be blessed. But what happens? There are two big things that happen here that, that, that make this concept really, really difficult for us. Uh, the fall is one. We're going to get to that. So this week, uh, I'm preaching on this, and the next week will be uh, uh, marriage uh, and, and, and gender. And then the week after that, Andrew Hancock will actually be preaching right here, and that'll be great. Uh, I asked him to preach, and he said yes, and I said, you get, you get the bad news. So he's going to get the fall, so that's good. So everything I'm doing for five weeks, I'm setting up paradise. He's going to dismantle in 30 minutes. It'll be, it'll be great. It just it all goes south, and, uh, uh, and it does. So that's one thing, though, because, because you, you look at this, and, and there's part of me that even as I'm preaching this says, like, that's like a Christian dream, right? Like, this isn't real. It is real, but we're looking at it through the lens of the fall because, let's be honest, work isn't as beautiful as I'm painting it to be, and that should make us long for something better. It was designed to be that, but your work was not designed cursed. Andrew may touch on this. It says it in there. You can read Genesis 3. The curse is on your work, that you will toil when you work. Not that you will work, but that you will toil. Your work is good. You're supposed to work. It's what we're supposed to be doing. It's just that your work isn't going to be so fun. You might be working for the weekend for a while. That's the curse. And that's right in there in the text. And so that's one side of it. But then there's this other side of it. It gets a little bit, a little bit heady, but I'll, I'll keep it really, really boiled down. There's this idea of dualism, that the things that are, uh, that are immaterial, the things that we can think of, the ideas of the world are, 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 are good, and that the stuff of the world, the physical stuff of this world is bad. And on the spectrum, this is dualism. Plato really kind of pushed this forward a long time ago. That's this idea that, that the closer we can get to working in, 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 uh, in, with ideas, uh, with systems, with processes, with, with, with immaterial things that we can't really touch, the closer we get to virtue and holiness in our work. But then th when we get closer to the earth, then that's the bad stuff. So there is this big difference that, that's happened in our own lives uh, where we see professors as, as heralds of, of, of things that are wonderful because they're, they're very much in the world of ideas. And we see plumbers as very not as awesome. There is a hierarchy here. But what God's saying is that they're all made in the image of God. They're all even. They're all level. They're all doing different things in different ways, proclaiming God in different ways. They're not different here. They're just looking at God and proclaiming God through a different pane on the stained glass window that is God. And so this is, this is something that we battle all the time. When we go, when we ask, you know, kids in grade school or high school, what do you want to be? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Very few people say, I want to be a day laborer because we have that, that thought there. But I know many, many day laborers who are more virtuous than I am. And that, that's, that, that's a problem. And so that, that changes the way we approach work. Work is not better or not better. It is just different. And so those are the two areas we get. But then luckily we get this guy named Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ 
comes, and in John, in the book of John, he comes, and, and knowing that this, this dualism is here, John specifically writes, the divine image, who is the highest of the immaterial, took on flesh and reminded us, in Jesus Christ, let's get over this. <laughs> Let, let's get past this. We can never work rightly if we don't see that, that we're all equal, that we're all in God's image, that even your coworker who is awful and doesn't even do a good job at maybe small tasks is made in the image of God, that when you have to review someone really hard, when you have to fire someone, when there are cuts and, la and layoffs, you're not cutting and laying off and, and, and reprimanding people who are less than you. You're just making an organizational decision that needs to be made, and this person is the image of God. The language you approach your superiors with, the language you approach your equals with in your workplace is going to change because the image of God is in us all. And Jesus Christ says, take that hierarchy and get rid of it because the gospel is here. If for you, you can be forgiven. Sin is the big deal. Okay, now we're going to do some work and let's just help each other do it well. Man, what a great way if we just approached anything like that. Confrontation at work, on a team. You didn't get this done. You didn't get that done or whatever. What if we just approach this with, hey, really, really value you as a person because I do, because God does. And here's how we can maybe get better. Man, that's, that's incredible. But Jesus doesn't just do that because he could give us a pattern. He could give us some of these examples here of how to do our work well. Jesus does something else. He redeems us because he creates Adam in this garden state without sin. We don't have sin yet in Genesis 1 and 2. And he creates them there and puts them there. But then we experience the effects of the fall on our work. Because of Jesus, we can be redeemed. Our, our, our relationship with God, because he's a relational God that creates us to work within relationship, can be restored. And we can have a right relationship with God and work from that relationship. So Timothy Keller, uh, I'm indebted to his, his, his work here. Uh, every good endeavor. I have a copy if someone wants it. I just like, I've got extra copies because it's so stinking good. Every good endeavor. He just walks through this idea of, of how does faith and work uh, integrate together. Uh, he gives four, uh, four implications of this. And this is where I will, uh, I will land it and, uh, and, 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 and invite you to consider it. He says, I think they're up on the screen here. In Christ, we have a different set of virtues. We have a different view of humanity. We have a different source of guidance, and we have a different audience. The world needs Christians working out this idea of work for it to be better. So we have a different set of virtues. Uh, there's a guy, a uh, philosopher, Thomas Aquinas, he argued that Plato's uh, cardinal virtues, justice, courage, temperance, prudence, these are things that are just kind of Everyone believes these things. These are all good things. But Thomas Aquinas pointed out that Plato kind of forgot something. He forgot some of these theological virtues, these Christian virtues, virtues like faith and hope and love. Your workplace needs you to bring faith and hope and love to it. It's not something we are going to reason to. When you bring faith and hope and love, that your work is not defining you. That is a different thing that you contribute and share with your coworkers. I'm sure you have coworkers who are just working to make an extra dollar, who are just working to feed their identity. There is faith and hope and love in Jesus Christ. 
Thomas Aquinas says this. You missed it. That's, that's not, that's, the workplace is better with faith and hope and love, and you can only get that in Jesus Christ. So then the question for you, application would be a question. Who needs that faith and hope and love? Just think of one of your coworkers. Think of someone in your home, if you work in the home. How can you bring that clearly to your workplace? Uh, and then the second point, uh, Christ brings a different view of humanity. Now, not Thomas Aquinas, but now John Calvin says that Scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men merit of themselves, that, that I'm worth whatever I can do, but to look upon the image of God in all men. It really provides a, 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 an equal playing field. Everyone in the image of God, some forgiven sinners. And to, uh, to all we owe honor and love. Third point, a different source, uh, Christ gives a different source of guidance. So there's their, their guidance, their principles, their virtues, their, their standards, their policies, those can just get you in the right ballpark. But Tim Keller points this out here as, I, as, as I'm continuing to, to, to quote him here. He says, he says, not simply a guiding set of principles or rules that limit Christian contact. Um, that's, that's not the guidance he's talking about. He says, but Christianity brings this other thing called wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do in the 80% of life's situations in which moral rules don't provide a clear answer. Most of your day at work and in life is made of non-moral decisions. Do I turn left or right? I don't know. Uh, do I choose this station or that station? Do I choose this coffee or that coffee? Do I choose uh, uh, Apple or PC? Even though that one I feel like feels moral uh, sometimes, the way we talk about it. Uh, this job or that job. Uh, sometimes we need to ease off how much we think we're doing good or bad with the decisions we make in life. A lot of what we do is just making decisions. But the Bible says, I mean, you read Psalms, you read Proverbs, there is a wisdom that comes from God and His Word and the Spirit that helps you navigate those decisions wisely. That is different. That's not something that any other wisdom literature or any other religion is, is providing you. Christ is providing you this, and the Word of God is revealing this. And wisdom, I feel like, is something that you back into. You can't just get wisdom. You can get understanding but you have to be in this. You have to think this. You have to reflect on this. And then one day you just back up and, well, it seems right that God would be pleased to go this way. Man, this is, this is a different thing. So then this last one, a different audience. Christ brings a different audience. I mean, this is the, I cringe at it, but it's such a good term, uh, the audience of one. Um, that, that, that's what you're working for. You're not working to to, to perform for your, your boss. You're not working to perform for the raise. You're not working to perform for these things. You're doing this in a different way. And I could say that, but to actually believe it and do it is so much harder than to say it. Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, work as if you were serving the Lord. Work as if you were serving the Lord. That might be a good one uh, for those frustrating times. Put that on your, on your, on your laptop. Put that on your, uh, on your desk or wherever you're looking. Work as if you were serving the Lord because it's really easy to not work that way. What would it be if my work itself was my offering to God? Ooh. So there's a lot in here. I was, I was joking around uh, earlier today. I said, I think I've got a five-hour sermon, and I did it in close to five hours. So that's good. That's good. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue on here with our, with our service here. But, but, but the, big, the big takeaway that we get is that whatever we do, 
Whether we eat, we sleep, or we work in the home, from the home, out of the home, whatever it is that we do, do it for the glory of God. Who are you in Christ? What makes you that in Christ? What do you believe in Christ? And then how does wherever God has put you, whatever garden he may have put you in, with whatever vegetation and plants and animals may be there, how do you then proclaim God through that? And how do you make it better? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us such an incredibly difficult challenge uh, because it, it wears us down to understand that we do not have enough gas in the tank to work for ourselves. We need you. This is way beyond us. You call us uh, to a vocation of the gospel, proclaiming your glory in Jesus Christ. That's it. Help us to understand that. Creativity isn't so easy for all of us. Help us to see ways to do this in real life, to hear our coworkers, to hear our family members, to hear our children, and to hear them asking questions that Christ answers. Where is your hope? Where is your faith? Where is your love? As we go out into the world, I pray, God, that you would give us an increasing um, blurring of the lines between work and faith, between work and church, between the Sabbath and the other six days of work. Convict us to proclaim you more clearly. Convict us to take time to think about this. I pray that you would, uh, that you would make Johnson County just a, uh, a hotbed of flourishing for the gospel. That it would just, uh, that everywhere we look, in all of our, in all of our professions, in all of our, all of our communities, that people could walk around and say, this is Johnson County, Iowa. It's different. It is something else. Uh, they think they're so thoughtful about justice within the workplace. They're so thoughtful about handling truth. They think of each other differently. Even between the professions, they're doing something different. I pray that you give us unity in Christ increasingly and give us the boldness to say it and define it clearly that it's not just something we happen upon, but that we have to labor at this. And what you give us, give us the ability to labor well in step with your spirit.